and welcome to Reliving My Youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is James Grant. Now, James was the lead singer and songwriter of the Scottish band Love and Money. They had a minor hit in the States back in 1988 with Hallelujah Man off of Strange Kind of Love. Really fantastic album. A lot of heavy hitters worked on that album. Toto's Jeff Beccaro, Steely Dan's Donald Fagan, and Steely Dan's producer Gary Katz. Featured some great songs, like I mentioned, Hallelujah Man, Strange Kind of Love, Jocelyn Square, and Walk the Last Mile, which I may have included on a mixtape. It did, you know, it, it did pretty well. It sold about 250,000 copies, but the problem was they had so many different genres of music, love and money, that it was kind of hard to market them just to one genre of music. So we talk about that. We also talk about the story behind some of their songs. And when they toured in the States, he shares a great story about opening up for Tina Turner. James released a ton of great solo albums. We focus on one of them, Strange Flowers, and what he's up to these days. I really enjoyed my conversation with James. It was very fascinating conversation, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with James. So, James, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. No worries, man. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So, what has like the last like eighteen months been for you, like with you know the COVID and the quarantines and everything like that? Um, a lot of dog walking. A lot. Of dog walking um but i've been quite lucky and uh work wise i started doing a thing um just a couple of years ago and it's bespoke songwriting and basically it's really for fans but um i'll write a song with someone help them say what they want to say usually i'm helping someone tell someone else how much they love them and then I'll record it and give them the song, the song's theirs. I mean, I get paid for it. Right. Um, but it's been really great. Uh, like I've done, in the last 18 months, I've done about 40. So I'm working on two this week. It's, you know, it's. Um, I was trying to nail a guitar part earlier on, just before the interview, but the... It's a it's a beautiful thing because people let you into their lives, you know, um, and it's a real privilege to kind of kind of do it, and also just not to put too fine a point on it, it's kept me busy, right? You know, um, yeah. I mean, it's never I mean a great time to have a pandemic, but uh, now at least with the technology, we're able to, you know, still communicate with people and you're still able to at least do some work that you weren't able to have done, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago. And it's. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that kind of side of it, to be honest, my life, the gigs thing is a, is a huge loss because that's right. still how I make money. Yeah. And um, that's my, my, like, how I make a living generally. Um, so that's a massive loss. But other than that, in terms of recording and working, I lead a quite an isolated existence anyway. Right. You know, I, I'd sort of sit in front of the computer writing pretty much every day. And that's that's my thing. That's what I do. 
I mean, like, you know, con contrary to public belief, not all musicians are, you know, super rich, so they need the scoring, you know, record sales make, now are make, just, make 11. Uh, just, yeah, right. absolutely. Uh, and it's harder um, yeah. these days, you know, the, I don't know why I do that whole kind of rose tinted glasses looking back disingenuously to the 1980s, right. whining about how great it was, but you have to understand that a band like Love and Money wouldn't exist in today's market. You know, it just, it wouldn't be. There would be no space for us. That Back then, you were allowed not to be mega successful and still make records. Um, record companies had a lot of money to spend. And there were a lot of record companies <laughs> and publishing companies. Now there aren't. You know, um, and that, these are just facts. And also it was easier to make money because you had CDs, LPs, uh, and um, cassettes, you know. So my first band, when, when I'd signed a record deal, I signed a record deal when I was like 19, my first band, that was pre-CD. So I've seen it, that medium come and go. You know, um, I'm fortunate now in that a lot of my audience, the demographic still like CDs. Yeah. They still want to pay £10 for a CD. Right. And that's good for me. Yeah. I mean, I, I love having a physical copy of, of a CD. You know, I had so many to the point where I had to get rid of the case and just buy like albums just to put them in there because my wife was, you know, Basically, I'm gonna throw them out if you don't, you know, do something about this. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll buy the albums, and I have like, yeah, you know, I mean, I've six done or seven that. of them. I had my my records packed, yeah, ready to go to like a charity shop, right? Because you're thinking I can't take up this space anymore. It's not, yeah. it's not right, you know. Basically, a room, <laughs> yeah. just full of that shit, right? But I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. Although I don't actually play a lot of them anymore, I couldn't get rid of them because it was such a huge part of who I am. I Reason, found yeah. it really difficult. Right. So I still have them. They're in the loft somewhere, but um, I can't. I can't get rid of them. Yeah, no. <laughs> Maybe I'll be buried with them. I could see like my body <laughs> burning on a boat with all my records. That would be quite good. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know. I bought a couple. You know records recently in a couple of antique shops they, they was had you know a nice collection so i stocked up and i didn't even have a record player so i had to go ahead and buy a, another record player because i just yeah i guess so many. That, i mean you're you're obviously you're younger than me but it was when i was growing up it was such a you know people walked around with records going to other people's houses to play those records um you know and you would sit and listen to records. It's kind of unthinkable in, in today, yeah. you know, not to be doing something else at the same time, you know, just like listening to music. Um, and again, I don't want to do, people live how they live and they have phones and shit and they walk about like this. Yeah. It's not better or worse. It just is what it is. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I do feel like a bit of an anachronism. I, I don't really 
I think the the physical contact with music was a good thing. Yeah. And also even in terms of artwork, things like that, the fact that you had something this size as opposed to this size or no size. Yeah. <laughs> um the whole that whole aspect of it was so important, I think also, you know. Yeah. I mean just like having you know the art like you mentioned the artwork the liner notes see who worked on the album and even the lyrics because a lot of albums had the lyrics in there as well and it, you could spend plenty of time just looking at that stuff not even listening to the music just you know reading the lyrics or even well, we reading talk, who was on the production we would talk me and my friends about what songs meant you know like right. Ziggy Stardust and things like what what does this mean is this guy from space yeah. is he a guy <laughs> you know what like so you would talk about all these things and then I think another factor is that there was no information on like for example Led Zeppelin you bought Led Zeppelin for the the fucking name wasn't even on it there's a picture of an old man carrying a bale of hay they were so massive, they didn't need to put their name on, on their right. But th there was literally nothing known about Led Zeppelin. There were, there were rumours that Jimmy Page was, you know, conducted satanic like yeah. ceremonies. It, obviously, he did buy Alistair Crowley's old house in Loch Ness, things like that. Um, but you, you didn't know anything. You didn't know anything about anyone. So there was this sense of um, probably it was like a cult when you bought one of these records. Yeah. You know, you were inducted into this cult like that was worldwide. Right. Um, and I, I just thought there was something really fantastic about the idea that there was no information about Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd. Right. You know, whatever, you know, just to the most humongous bands in musical history. Nobody knew shit about them. Yeah. You know, I, th I think that was great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, because now we, with every artist, you go into their homes, you know exactly what they're having for dinner. Oh, you know, somebody you know, somebody takes a dump, there's a picture of it on Instagram. You know, sure. it, it's, it's like anything, you know, yeah. there's too much information. Right. Now, do you think if you had like, you know, Instagram or any of this social media stuff when you guys were starting, it would have helped you out a little more. No, 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 I don't. Um, and also, I I think so. Again, I'm doing that looking back. Life as it was, you didn't have an avatar version of yourself right. um, that you had to maintain on a daily basis. Um, your image, if you like, that you had to project. The record company did that kind of shit for you. Um, some bands were good at kind of creating their own image, creating their own mythology. But I suppose that to me is what, going back to the last point, is what's sort of lacking now. Um, because this, it's just too much. It's like overkill. Right. But that idea of... I'm glad I, I didn't grow up with that pressure. 
because it starts from a very young age. And you right. know, if you have kids, you want you really worry about these things. Oh, totally, know? yeah. Um, but their lives are so so different, and in terms of this kind of, and it it doesn't matter if you're Taylor Swift or John Smith. You have this image of yourself that you have to maintain across a number of platforms uh, and it's an extraordinary thing really yeah and just basically now i have an 11 year old daughter who's obsessed with like tiktok and you know instagram and everything is followers followers oh keep looking at your followers and i'm like don't worry about that you know just just do stuff for yourself if one person likes it's great if nobody just do it for yourself if that makes you happy that's fine, but just do it for yourself. Yes, yeah, it's, the, it's the, the channeling thing in that if you have a group of friends and the most popular person in that group of friends posts a shitty photograph of themselves and 90 of the friends like it, but then someone else posts a picture and only three people like it, right. they don't feel validated. I know. And it's it's a worrying thing because you get channeled. It's like unless you do something stupid, and you or you bitchy a bit about someone, but that gets more likes. You then think this works. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to keep doing that shit because the, people like me when I'm like that. Right, and, and it's just it's not real. I don't. You know. No, I. I agree. I agree. It's a pressure that we didn't have, you know. And another factor is um, songwriting. You know, the whole the idea is like writing songs or whatever. I do write at the computer a lot now, especially talking about the bespoke song thing. But I, you know, I still use pen and paper also. And the way that I set that up, I haven't really changed it because it sort of works for me. And I think if you talk to a lot of songwriters, sometimes it can be infuriating when, they, when they're when they explaining their methods because you think, that's just really stupid. It would be easier if you did this. Yeah. But there's a sort of it ain't broke, don't fix it vibe right. with a lot of songwriters. Another thing about a lot of songwriters is they don't listen to much music. Um. Right. Especially if you're in the middle of writing a record. Right. Um, well, that maybe I'm overgeneralizing here, but I've spoken to like a few friends that do it and all that, and I think it's a common thing, like to shut yourself off from influence. Right. Um, but I mean, like the technology is good. So let's say if you're walking around somewhere and a line comes to you and you don't have a pen and paper, you know, to, to get one, you just pick up your phone and you can either just speak into it or use the note section on your phone. So, I mean, that, that's at least. Uh, absolutely. Positive, yeah. And also the, the recording thing, um, which is fantastic. You know, the idea that an idea comes to me, I pick up the guitar and you know, on my phone, I've, I can record it and, yeah. and get a version of it before it, it, especially as you get older, before it evaporates. Um, 
when you're younger, I think you're able to maintain tunes and lyrics and your kind of storage system in your in your head. You're able to juxtapose things. Mm. Not so much, I think, as you get older. It's right. better to have like actual records of things. Because sometimes I'll play recordings on my phone and think, fuck, that's a really good idea. I don't even remember doing that, you know. Right. <laughs> so it's useful. Yeah. Have you experienced, like, I guess you can call it writer's block? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How do you overcome that? Um, work. I think you just have to stick with it, right. to be honest. Um, so, the again, I know I keep coming back to it, but the bespoke thing basically means I'm constantly working on writing or helping someone write. So I'm I'm always thinking of how I can put something, an idea that might work, a different angle. And to be working every week on it, I don't have the block. Right. Because I'm kind of in the zone. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think it's a difficult thing again as you get older, you tend to write the same song a lot, so you're maybe looking for different ideas or different approaches. And I, I think that's more difficult just to keep yourself interested, just so that you have, I don't know. I think it, it was different when I was younger. The songs just kind of fell out of me and I honestly didn't question it. Right. Um, and it mystifies me to think back on those days. You know, I remember even like, so in my, my first band, a singer wrote the words in the studio. He just, we would be playing the music and he would just write something and it would be really good. And I sort of thought, I need to be able to do that. I, that's, I have to be able to do that. And that, to me, the thing that I knew was that he read a lot and he wrote every day. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I just, I constantly read and I kept a diary every single day for years and years and years. And sometimes it's just bullshit. It's not like diary of a young artist. It's like right. boring. Yeah. But you're writing. And the best advice I could give to anyone who wants to write is write. Yeah. It's <laughs> simple, but it's true. <laughs> don't just talk about it. Don't I say, I've got this great idea. Yeah, we'll do the fucking work, you know. Right. And write it. Look at it again, rewrite it, rewrite it again, think of other ways as it, it's optimum. And then you might get to a level when you've been doing that for a couple of years of you can just do it. Right. You know, so I don't know. I, I think a lot of it is just having to work through it when you get a block. 
right. you know, to, to be, it's grim. I know it's, it's really grim when you're sitting in front of a screen or in front of a blank page thinking, I have nothing here. I have absolutely nothing. Um, other than cliches and trite phrases or whatever, but you can come back the next day and it can be there. You know, I think you have to turn up and you have to try, you know. Now, like with the bespoke songs that you're enjoying, have you like helped out someone and then in return given you inspiration for something else totally unrelated? Absolutely. Absolutely. Some people's stories, I mean, they're quite extraordinary, really. Um, and I know I said before, it's a beautiful thing. When you see how people love each other and how they want to express it. But it's not always that. Sometimes someone's lost someone and they want to write a song about that person and they tell you about their life. So it's really private. I don't I don't want to sort of disclose a lot of it. The songs are all there. They're on Sound, SoundCloud or whatever. They're on Bandcamp as well. Um, and I, I put them out as a download, but the money goes to like homeless charity. Mm-hmm. And the second one, I'm just about finished it, and the money's going to go to a mental health charity. Because I get paid for the for doing the songs, so I don't need to make money back off. One song I was working on, and the story was quite grim. The story that I was being told was quite grim. And I felt that I wanted to steer it towards some kind of redemption. And that felt like what I had to do. Right. And the person in question had to say, here's what I see within this song. I wanted to to offer him the possibility of some peace. Um, and it, I mean, it's an amazingly fulfilling thing. Right. Um, maybe I'm flattering myself, but I feel that I managed it. Right, yeah. To a degree, you know, I, I can't, you can only do so much, obviously, but he seemed really happy with, with what what we came up with, you know. Not only are you like writing a song, but you're also kind of being, being therapeutic also for the person you're helping with. So it's that kind of like, yes. Yeah. thing, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I think there's an element of that and all songwriting. Yeah. Um, you know, the idea that you're working through something. Um, but I also like the idea that you don't completely ever 100% know what it's about. There's, a, there's an element within it. I mean, it's... Where the, you know you still cast a thankful glance skyward as lyrics come to you, you know. Right. And ultimately, that's probably a very mistaken and ego-driven uh, concept, but um, it's that sort of thing where 
sometimes you, you stumble upon something really good as opposed to unearth it or right. <laughs> work towards it, you know. Yeah. I mean, and like songs have different meanings for everybody. I mean, you Absolutely. Want, yeah, once you put it out there, is it really your song anymore? Because I mean, a lot of artists say, oh, well, it's out there. It's not mine anymore. It's whatever people interpret it to be. Well, I agree with that in the sense that I think I, I like songs with with a built-in ambiguity. Right. And I think anyone's interpretation of one of my songs is absolutely as valid as my interpretation of it. Um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on about trying to decipher Bowie's lyrics or whatever, where, you know, and, and I'm talking about in primary school, <laughs> we would be talking about this, you know, like um, the idea of what is this? What, what does this mean? And um, funnily enough, I, I don't know, I was thinking, like, when we were talking about the Beatles. I was so obsessed with music when I was younger. I found this book and it was like the top 200 albums as chosen by the critics. Now, you can probably off the top of your head figure out what the top 10 would be, generally speaking. I think it was, number one was Sgt Peppers. Right. Number two was Blonde and Blonde. Number three was Highway 61. It was like Forever Changes, Astro Weeks, Rubber Soul, Revolver, just the, right. the, the, so this was it. But I basically made it my mission to get these records. And when I was 15, 16, so I bought Sergeant Peppers and I bought Blonde on Blonde and I didn't get either of them. <laughs> uh, I, I couldn't really understand what was happening what it meant. But coming back to them in my 20s with context, yeah. I got them completely, you know, and you sort of think, I know what's going on now. Yeah. I know who T.S. Eliot is. <laughs> right. I, I know who Ezra Pound is, you know, in reference to the Dylan thing, the Beatles thing. You learn a bit, a bit more about what that record actually meant for music, as opposed to just listening to it in its own right. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a sort of cheat. Maybe you you should just listen to them in their own mm -hmm. right. But sometimes the context makes it completely different. Yeah, absolutely. Now, like you mentioned, like songs with meaning, you know, interpretations to different people. Um, I use one of your songs and we talked about albums on CDs in between there, sandwich were cassette tapes and nobody likes cassette tapes. I mean, that's probably not going to be, you know, coming back as a revival at all, but very popular when I was younger was making mixtapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, of course, you know, now I guess all you can do is make a Spotify playlist, but it's not the same, you it's know, not. it's actually handing, you know, a, a mixtape to, you know, someone you like. No, because it showed your taste. You know, you exactly. would give girlfriends, you would give them yeah. your friends, and it's like, look, I've got great, I've got great taste. Yeah, right. But also, what I did is I never put the songs on the on the cover of the mixtape because then they have if they like the songs and then maybe they find interest in me. 
they come back to me. Ooh, what was the name of that artist? What was the name uh, of that song? So I, 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 yeah, yeah, exactly. So on one of my very first mixtapes to my girlfriend, who now is my wife, was "Walk the Last Mile." Okay, and very powerful song. I, I absolutely love that song, and that was actually in the running for one of our wedding songs. Watched a girl with eyes like thin ice dive into these pools of blue But I tripped over you I cursed these cool whispering lights I cursed the things that keep me from you Again my patience makes the climb Will my tears buy me time? Can you lie I crumble? Forgot what I've been told I never thought that I could feel so you're at the center of everything I do Wherever I go, I'll walk the last mile with you I heard you say dissolve in my arms and run to fall In these meadows, but you're just a memory from a mocking old dream But I cling to my dreams I'm drawn to things that kill me It's safer to pretend But I'll deceive myself again And you let I crumble Forgot what I've been told I never thought that I could feel so old You're at the center Of everything I Wherever I go, I'll walk the last mile with you I've seen the whole world turn to gold And it's just like a fairground ride Sometimes it turns out that the tyrants are the girls you'll always know. Someone loves you in this world.
Sorry, I didn't make the cut, but because she wants something else and, you know, happy wife. But um, yeah, but that song is very powerful and very emotional. And I'm sure there's a different meaning how you wrote it to what I interpreted it to be. Absolutely. Sometimes I don't think talking about it is helpful. Um, But I do remember the title. I was out with my mom and my sister my girlfriend, we went for something to eat. And I'm from a Catholic family. And my mum was talking about some old hymn. And uh, and she mentioned the phrase, walk the last mile. And when she said it, it was like, I just froze and thought, I've got to have that. Yeah. And that was it. It just... Next week, I wrote it, right. and it, I do a thing um, where I, uh, I do handwritten lyrics for a lot of my songs, and that's number one, okay. What the Last Mile. That's the most popular song right. for a handwritten lyric. I've literally written hundreds of them. Right. Uh, but there, there does seem to be something about it, and I'm not really sure. Right. Well, it just works, I think, as a song, yeah. but I'm not sure I can explain exactly right. why. And that's probably quite good. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> now, like that album, which was you know off of um, Strange Kind of Love album, that's how I discovered it you guys because you got a little bit of um radio t- radio play in in the states and i was fortunate enough to hear um they played hallelujah man which you know absolutely great song um now that album you had um steely dan's gary katz right he yeah. produced it and uh, toto's jeff picaro he was played drums on it so you actually had like i guess big, you know big people on it and you know so you had a lot of, I guess you can say, backing by the record company for that album? Yeah, massive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the whole idea of... So our first album worked with a guy called Tom Dowd as well. So Tom Dowd produced, like, Eric Clapton, Rod Stewart. He did 461 Ocean Boulevard, Atlantic Cross, and he did all the Aretha stuff. Right. Um, so we'd already worked with big producers, if you like, but the whole Steely Dan thing was a different area. You know, it's mm-hmm. 
it was prestigious. Right. But, you know, I, I kind of flew to New York and met Gary and within half an hour, we just got on together and he got me. Right. You know, and um, we spent seven months making that record. You know, it was, we, we were in the studio every day. The level of detail was it just frankly breathtaking. Um, and it was quite hard to adjust to it because we start off and I, I was always a, like a, quite a good guitarist. You know, I, I mm. can play guitar. The singing thing came later. I wasn't that comfortable with my voice. Um, so the, the level of scrutiny and fastidiousness that, that Gary and the whole kind of Steely Dan ethos, it, it was nervous breakdown material, you know. <laughs> yeah. It really was. It's particularly, I didn't mind the guitar thing. He would, he would happily have sat and listened to me play guitar for weeks. He, right. he loved my guitar playing. And I suppose at that time, you know, I, I felt good about that. That was okay. But my voice, I, after we'd made that record, I pretty much hated my voice um, up until about 10 years ago. Uh, I, I know that's a common thing for singers as right. well. I, I quite like it now. Um, and I think I'm a good singer now, but back then I didn't feel like a good singer. You mentioned Hallelujah Man. I had to sing that a lot, um, like a, a lot. Uh, you know, be like, we did good today. We got a syllable. You know, <laughs> just extraordinary. Um I suppose it didn't do my confidence much good in that respect. Still sounds good though. Oh yeah, no, that, that album. Yeah, I guess it's... another way of looking at it is you do it however many times you need to do it. I, I still, you know, absolutely get that. Like Walk the Last Mile, for example, I think I sang it three times and that's what ended up in the record. Hallelujah Man probably sang it about 30 times. Um, it just, for one reason or another, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't happening. It, you know, wasn't working. Right. Um, but equally now, I don't. You know, I'll sing something ten times, or I'll sing it once, if it feels good. You know, or if I don't have it again, I'm not so neurotic about it now. But right. it was a minefield for a few years after that, because I just didn't feel like a singer. I don't think. Now, did like the people around you, producers, whatever, do they like kind of encourage you? It's like you are a singer, you know, give you the confidence kind of to, to, to boost yeah. your ego a little bit? Yeah, they do, but it just got, I think it was just a lot of pressure, you know, you know, being in my kind of mid 20s or whatever. and. I don't know. I, I found it quite hard to cope with. That, like, I remember actually saying, 
like Paul and Bobby were in the studio and they would be sitting watching me. And at one point I said, do you guys mind going into the other room? Right. And it, it, it sounds really fucked, even as I'm saying this to you now, like that I would even have thought or said something like that. But I think maybe I had to take my frustration out on somebody or something. I'm just sorry that I did that, but I was just like, it was sitting watching them doing nothing uh, while I was working my ass off, yeah. I suppose, just really irritated me. Right. <laughs> um, they, I mean, in terms of guitar playing and all that, it made me feel good, you know. And the thing, Gary's still a friend. He phoned me last week. Okay. And I said, um, I said to him, I heard, that's weird that you're phoning because I heard the Steely Dan track in the radio today. And he said, which track? And I said, Dirty Work. And he was like, what? And I said, <laughs> Dirty Work. Yeah. He was like, what? And I said, Dirty Work. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, Dirty Work, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I still speak to Gary, and like we we still have a re like a really good relationship. That's good. Um, which is re it's really sweet, you know. I mean, um, it's a really cool thing. I mean, he's a great guy, and I was in New York a few years ago, and we hung out again. And that was great. Yeah. You know, been to see him in London and stuff. So nah, it, that's really cool. We're still friends. But um, I think after that, after we made Strange Kind of Love, I felt like I had to drive away from it. Drive away from, I don't know. I felt like uh, I needed to reboot my idea of what music should be. Were you initially happy with that album? Yeah, but it was so intense making it. Um, that it, it's almost like the analytical side of it. When I came home, I must have been a complete nightmare because it was like I couldn't order a sandwich without thinking, was it the optimum thing here? You know, right. what would be best? Gherkins or no gherkins? Looking at all the different sides of, of that particular facet, and every other one. And um, that was how we made records, you know, and or how we made those records. And that's how Donald Fagan and Walter Baker operated, and Gary. That's how they operated. It, it was extraordinary. And there were elements of it that were um I don't know, just kind of off the cuff. And one thing that that never happened was we always, I, I always felt in charge. I didn't really think, I didn't feel cowed by the idea that you're working with this great producer or whatever. Right. I mean, we had a guy come in, I won't name names, but so there's a, a track on that album, Inflammable. Yeah. 
So this guy came in, it was like he had his CV with him. You know, he was jazz saxophonist of the year or whatever. And, you know, he was meant to be some like really great sax player, but, and he handed us the thing, this thing, it's like things he had played on, records he'd made, people, mm. artists he'd worked with. And you're a bit like, what the fuck? Is, you know, it's like, I, why don't you just come in and play the sax? Exactly. You know, I don't need to see this shit. But anyway, right. he, um, he, he started playing and I just thought, this isn't going to work. You know, this, mm. it, it's just not going to work. You know, right. and I'm like, I can't stand this. And Gary's like, I can't tell him that, you know. Like, yeah. I'm like, well, do what you need to do, but this is not happening. You know, right. it's just so, can I give him a run at it a few times? It just wasn't going to work. And then he called this other guy called Lou Marini. Now, Lou Marini was in the Blues Brothers band, really okay. Steve Proper, guys like that. He came in and we played him the track. And he didn't have his CV or anything like that. He listened to the track and he went, okay, I've got this, and went in. And Gary said, get the mic set up right away. So we were playing it, he had his headphones on, and he was playing. The solo came in, and he did it. One take. We missed the first note because the mic wasn't set up in time. But other than that, you're watching him doing it in real time, the first time, and it was just magical. So things like that could still happen. Sometimes you did a guitar thing, it would be like, oh, I've got this idea, lash it down. That I ended up in the record. There's a bit of clavinet on it, on how Louis Man that um, Donald Fagan played. We never really created it, but right. he did. You know, I didn't have to tell him the chords either. Yeah. He just worked out. Yeah, I mean, it would be kind of funny just to tell Donald Fagan what to do. I mean, <laughs> at that point, right? Yeah, he didn't yeah. ask. He didn't ask yeah. what, you know, what keys this in. Yeah. What, like what are the chords? Right. He just he just walked up and started playing, and it, yeah. it was like, wow. Right. But equally, I was thinking, hmm, I don't want this to be about Donald Fagan playing on it. That that's not important. Right. And not all of what he did worked. Um. Yeah, it was fucking amazing technically, all the rest of it, but right. that wasn't what I wanted the song to be. Right. Now talk to me about the, the title track, which that's really the song that got me to buy the cassette at that point was Strange Kind of Love. Shadows in. She closes her eyes. 
Yeah, um, I remember Jeff. That was his favourite strange kind of love. I suppose it's, it's not a typical Jeff Picardo right. song because we used a Lynn drum drum machine for the bass drum. He just played on it after that. But yes, it, it's a good, really good sounding record. Strange kind of love still sounds really good. Right. Um, I think, and I think the parts on it and all that are really cool. You know, the guitar parts. And I remember at the end, I was playing, there's an electric guitar at the end and it's like atonal. I was just kind of thrashing it and right. making noise and getting feedback because that's how I wanted, I wanted to, that angst. Yeah. Yeah. And Gary was like, what are you doing? You can play. And I'm like, I know, but that's not what I want to do here. I don't want to do like tasteful blues licks. Yeah. I want like this to sound like a nervous breakdown. Um, so like we got things like that in as well. You know, it wasn't like that seemed pretty left field at the time for the kind of record we were making. But right. that's the way it had to be because I don't know. You have to fight your corner, yeah. you know. I sort of thought, no, this has got it's got to be like this, um, because the other way is like taste rock, M O R type of sketch. I, I I didn't want it to be like that. Right. Now, do you think like? I mean, I love the album. I like. I still think it. You know, it's. I, st- I, I, I still today. think it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Now, but there's so many different like genres on music, you know, on that, you know, as well as like, you know, the third album. Do you think that was kind of hard to kind of market you guys because of that? 100%. Yeah. Um, so I have really eclectic taste. I love, I love like Johnny Cash, I love Bob Dylan, I like Led Zeppelin. I like chic, I like disco music. Right. You know, I, I like everything. There are two kinds of music, good and bad. Yeah. <laughs> sure. So the genre thing doesn't mean shit to me. And I hate the fact that things get pigeonholed like that. And I like things that, that break that up. Yeah. You know, I always thought like, um, like Beck, he came along, like you know, Odalie was just such a fantastic record because right. it's part country, part hip hop. And I just always thought that's great because you can like both. Yeah, you know, it's cool right. to like all sorts of different kinds of music. But I think it, in terms of marketing, um, people were like, well, What What are you guys like, funky, or are, are you like dance, rock, or pop? You know, and you're like, yeah, all of the above, right? Exactly. And country and some more shit as well, but yeah, not that, not that easy to market, I suppose. Because they had a term like I'm sure you know it, like in the late eighties, the sophista pop, and they had a bunch of bands, you know, going oh, like hate shit like this, but go on. You know, I'm I'm saying it's also the the genre genre thing, which you know was another like I guess. For, for you guys on there because oh, there's a couple of Stanley songs like that as well. Sophisticated pop music 
is is maybe a good way of describing it, you know. Um, in some ways, uh, I guess it's the idea that it was literate pop music, you know, like that that there were references within it. You know that I don't know that I know that um, the kind of music I make. The people who like it really like it, but I'm, I'd be the first person to hold my hand up. I, I know I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I'm like the lapsang Sushon of, of rock and roll. You know, uh, it's, I think if you get it, you get it. Right. If you don't, you just need to listen more. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it seemed like the countries where, in France, the way the radio worked was if you get playlisted, you get played a lot. Okay. So for something like Hallelujah Man, I think for people, it was maybe too much information. Like people thinking, what is that song about? What is he going on about in the verses? What? And then, you know, the second time they're like, it's a good groove though. And then the third time they're like, ah wait, that that's cool. On the blind side and down the back ways, the rules of service call. When you can't get what you need, you feel like taking a toss to it all. The sweet talk, make a better man. You can feel the darkness rise. Sometimes you don't know what you're fighting for.
That suited us. I, I think the kind of one listen type thing didn't. You know, I, I think, so what I was saying about France, France was the place we were most successful in the world. Um, we sold like 150,000 albums in France, Strange Kind of Love, you know, more than anywhere, more than Britain. But I think it worked because of that, the way that it, things get played in the radio. You know, it, it was like, We've, it just got under people's skin. Um, after a certain amount of time, it, it was allowed to infiltrate <laughs> the subconscious or something, some other bullshit like that. But I guess you get what I'm saying. It's sort of like when you're in, you're in, you know? Yeah. Right. You recorded that album in New York, correct? You, you say? Well, we, we worked in um, LA for a month doing okay. things with Jeff, and then we went to New York. You know? Right. So, was that your first trip to the States? No. No. no? Okay. No, I'd, I'd been to New York before, and we did our first album. I worked at the power station. Okay. Yeah. Only for a week. And um, that was cool. That was cool, and um, and I'd been like, I'd been a couple of times to do like media stuff, things right. like TV, shit, record company people. You know. Right. <laughs> so, what was the the tour like for you guys supporting that album? Yeah, I loved it. You know, it was it was really good fun. And I think there's, there's that kind of thing that you, when you're playing every night, you get really good, you know, you get really good at it right. so that you can just kind of do it. Um, and then maybe when you start to feel really good, 
you can take it somewhere different some nights because you just feel like you can do that, you know. But that, I think the year we did it, we were eight months on the road, you know, like America, Europe, all over. And we just played and played and played. Um, and that was the way it was. It was a busy life. You know, another thing, there was that whole kind of, you get into a town, you meet the guy from the record company, you do an in-store. I would get taken to do maybe a TV interview or a radio interview. You do radio idents. Hi, this is James Grant. You're listening to KXF, blah, blah, blah. And then you do your sound check, you grab something to eat, you do your gig, and then you're on the way somewhere else. Right. It's, it's pretty crazy. But, um, I remember... The, the, I can remember pretty much every single gig that we did. But like, when I was saying earlier on, but you know, you, you remember a really good night in Salt Lake City. I remember in New York, a guy who was a friend of Bobby's was like Barfly um, and jumped on the stage and tried to cheat the audience up at one point and it was a fucking disaster. Right. You know, thinking, I really wish this wasn't happening. Yeah. But unfortunately it was. Um, I remember people saying certain things to me at certain gigs. I didn't, I wasn't a great one for playing the game in terms of being nice to record company people. Uh, I was probably a bit of a prick in some ways. I, you know, I regret not kissing more ass, really. It could have made me a lot more successful, but right. part of me still thinks, fuck it. Now, you, you guys opened for Tina Turner, right? In the States yeah. a little bit? Yeah. yeah. Was, was it kind of hard, like, winning over her crowd? Well, we opened for B.B. King. Okay. We opened for Simply Red. I never liked supporting anybody. Uh, didn't really particularly like it. Okay. When we opened for Tina Turner, I was quite blasé about the whole thing. You know, it was no big deal to me. We were doing our thing and that was it. Yeah. And um, I said one night at Wembley Arena, we're not Tina Turner. Uh, she'll be on in half an hour. I thought it was really fucking funny. Yeah. <laughs> Some of the crowd thought it was funny. Yeah. Tina Turner's manager didn't think it was funny. And we really? got that night oh wow yeah but the thing was there was absolutely like we were unpenitent and you know we thought this was hysterical and the fact that we'd got blown off the two we were just like fuck off. we don't give a shit what you think right. and we that was kind of the way we operated a lot of the time and it was a good way to operate, I have to say. Yeah. It really was. Right. Now, there was a follow-up uh, 
Dogs in Traffic, right? That never really got made. Yeah. Like, what happened there? Dogs in the Traffic. Yeah. It's probably my favourite Love and Money record. Right. Took us a while to make it. We worked with a guy called Tony Phillips. Um, I think Tony had worked with people at the B-52s, things like that, but he'd worked on a couple of big records where he was just an engineer. Then we worked with a guy called Steve Nye, who did Japan, and he, he worked... He worked on quite a lot of the Roxy records. Okay. Roxy. Right. So it was slightly more left field approach. Um, I think the record company hated us doing it and it felt they would quite happily have made Strange Kind of Love too. Right. Um, I didn't want to do that. I wanted, yeah. to, I wanted things to be different and I kind of didn't want the sort of music I was into and I was moving away from dance music to a degree. You know, there are still grooves on the record, but it right. is not, it's not the same as Strange Kind of Love in that respect. And it was more countrified. I think yeah. they reflected think what I was into at the time, but the, the lyrics I think got more personal and maybe maybe more cerebral again. Um, I think there was more depth to it. So it's a record I'm really proud of, you know. Um, I think it still works really well. Yeah, no, it does. It's 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 a really good record. I mean, you know, My Love Lives in a Dead House, you know, I, I love the title too. So, you know, fantastic song as well. Well, here's the thing. Again, there's a bit of context to that. So... The record company sent us away to an island in Scotland and said, I mean, I wrote everything. So they were like, write a couple of hits. And I'm like, fuck off, you know. So I wrote, and we went away and I wrote, my love lives in a dead house, and sometimes I want to give up right. from that session. And I was like, there are your hits. Um, so I was really, I was quite uncompromising about yeah. things. Uh, but I, I didn't think that, that it wasn't just a piss take. No, I think My Love Lives in a Dead House is a really good piece of writing. Uh, it's clever. Yeah. The, the, the way the record is, it could be really popular. I, I wasn't trying to be esoteric or yeah. left field or whatever. Not, you know, I, I saw these songs and the record is mainstream you know i didn't just sort of thought this is great yeah you know if people got the chance to hear it they would like it um that's the way i feel about all of my music i don't really think it's that difficult right really when you went off on your own was it hard to kind of shake like the love and money part like did your writing change like when you kind of went off and you, really. I, I know like you were like you know basically you wrote what you wanted wrote for love and money but now since you're just james grant was it was it different no really no no i didn't see it like that uh 
to me it was just it was always just about the quality of the material right you know the the strength of your songs and we had a, a kind of stock phrase in love and money we, and it was that the song is king yeah so whether it be my love lives in the dead house or hallelujah man or jocelyn square yeah or winter it was the song should kind of i mean it's the song should dictate how it how it goes you know and that's mm. what it, we should try and make the best representation of this song um based on the chords and the words yeah. as opposed to trying to shoehorn it in a particular genre if you know what i mean you know so finding no, the best bed for this song the shoots of the song could grow right um, so it, my philosophy didn't really change in terms of the the writing and production wise it probably got a bit more stark um when I was doing my solo stuff and I felt that for a couple of years I had to drive away from the love and money thing in, t- in terms of gigs mm. I had to be quite uncompromising right uh, and say look that was then but this is now again over the last four or five years I've more come to terms with the fact that people want to hear love and money songs too and to be honest, I'm cool with that. Right. Although I wasn't for a time. I think a lot of artists are like that too. They Absolutely. kind of want to just live in the present and not, you know, kind of dwell about what they've done in a previous band or in previous albums. You know, because a lot of people are like, hey, this is for my new album. And then they immediately think, hey, it's a great time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. You know, and like, I, I was never like that. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I get it now. I, actually, it was... I did one gig years ago and I let the audience choose the songs. And they chose a lot of Love and Money songs because I didn't play them mm. at that point. Okay. And then I met a friend, a good friend after the gig, and he said, you looked like you were really enjoying it. And I said, I think I was. You know, that's the thing. And he said, would it be so bad to, to play a few more Love and Money songs? And I kind of thought, no, it wouldn't. And it would probably make my life a lot easier as well. Right. Um, although that's not why I'm doing what I do. But I guess you get what I'm saying. People come to see me. I want them to have a good time. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want them to contemplate the miseries of their, their life. Um, although they might have to at one or two junctures during the, the gig, but... I, I, I kind of still, I want to entertain people. Right. And plus, they are your songs. You know, yeah. I mean, they're might be older, but they are your songs. <laughs> like, whether it's Strange Kind of Love or whether it's a new song um, that's completely narrative you know, or a bespoke song. Right. You know, um, they're all mine to a degree, you know. Yeah. After like this bespoke project, are you going to work on another album? I've got. I'm kind of halfway through doing another album just now. Um, that's. I don't know. Finding it easier to work on other people's songs, but right. the, 
it takes me a while to make albums. I don't know. I think the the initial concept was that I was just going to do an acoustic album with strings, work with a, an orchestra. And I did about half of it. It's still the, the general concept, but there are times when you can't limit yourself. This, I think it's, I admire people who can make records where they do limit themselves in the sense like the, the White Stripes went through a period right. where they did that, where it would be like, it's guitar, bass and drums here. That's it. Yeah. Um, maybe someday I'll be able to make a record like that. But I guess the point I'm making is, so I recorded acoustic guitar, recorded the strings, and then I thought, you know, it's be really great with a piano or yeah. a And I can't not have that option. I, I, I can't, you know, you sort yeah. of, you just want it to be as good as it can be. Right. So, so now you're just pre- producing yourself, correct? Pretty much, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I've worked with enough people now to know, broadly speaking, what I'm doing, what I right. want to do, you know. Yeah. And again, I, I know I was dissing technology earlier on, but I, I love, I do love the kind of portability of a lot of like, you know, like logic and things like that. Yeah. Um, I think it's really, really good. And you can be really creative. Yeah. As long as you're not just piling in loops and it, like building Lego. Right. <laughs> so long as you don't use it like that, I th- you know, I think it's a really good way to record and also to work with other people, you know, to send them sessions, things like that. Done a bit of that over lockdown. And I, I think that's really cool. Like I played guitar on someone's record where they were sending me files and I was doing stuff at home. Really love that shit. You know, right. that's huh. yeah, yeah. that kind of collaborative thing. But now it's like you mentioned before how there's really... You can probably count on a couple of fingers how many record companies there really are. And now it's like you do everything yourself. You know, you produce your, I mean, you probably market yourself. I mean, you're basically a one person record company. Yeah. You, I don't really like that aspect of it. Like, actually, the thing I don't like about it's the thing most artists don't like generally. It's like I'm still having to tell people that I'm quite good. And that they should come and see me. Right. I'm still having to persuade people to give something a listen. You know that it's an unnecessarily complex arrangement now, where you're not trying to get somebody to buy something. You just want them to listen. Right. It's true. Three minutes, four minutes, and yeah. just listen. The buying might come months later when they, but. Probably it comes never. Yeah, especially yeah. now when you can just get everything for free on your phone. And, yeah. yeah. But so long as people want to come and see me live, that's fine. You know, I, I'm not... And again, I had my day where I, where I did these things. I made records that took eight months to make in studios in New York, working with guys who played in Michael Jackson records or guys yeah. in... You know... I had a good time and um, 
I learned a lot and I worked with some great people. I am so, so grateful for it. Right. Because we would not exist in this current climate. We, we just wouldn't. By the time we went to make Dogs in the Traffic, we'd already spent like three or four million pounds mm-hmm. record company money. And they weren't mm-hmm. really getting it back. It didn't look yeah. like they were ever getting it back. Right. But it didn't matter to them. Mm-hmm. And for love and money, there were thousands of bands like us who weren't making, they, they, they were ticking along, being moderately successful. But you were allowed to be because labels had bands like that on them. Right. You know, labels actually had bands that they thought were good for the label. You know, um, so long as you had someone like Dire Straits, you know, when one in three homes have a copy of, like, one of those records. Right. Or, you know, and whoever, Elton John, you know, who were on our record company, they were making a fortune for the record company. Then they could afford to have a love and money. Right. And like I said, that goes across the board, not just love and money, like right. all these yeah. other things. Yeah. Right. Now, talking about one of, this is probably my favorite um, solo work of yours, Strange Flowers. Oh, right. love, love that album. Um, talk to me about that album. Um, again, it's really eclectic. Um, and I suppose there were certain things on it, like this could be the day. I always found it easier to write darker songs, but I, I was determined to do something positive. Yeah. Um, I had the idea for the string part and I just wanted to make a big kind of positive sound. But like, and I, I really love that song. Strange Flowers. Strange because I had a friend who was a writer and he was working on a thing about vampires mm-hmm. in the street. And that was the initial idea what the song was going to be about strange flowers. Um, It's kind of about vampires. Maybe I shouldn't tell you that because that's probably not what your concept of it is. And remember, your concept's equally as valid. Exactly. Than mine. But um, that was the sort of idea behind that. For something like there's a song called Scarecrow Song. Yeah. It was this idea of, um, well, it was a few ideas really. Like it was a drinking song, but it was the idea that it was like an old soldier who missed the war and didn't have anywhere to go. That kind of concept. Right. And also, I had this mad idea at the time where I wrote a story that scarecrows, a scarecrow in a field saw Christ on the cross on a hill and thought he was a scarecrow, but he was the king of the scarecrows. <laughs> and all the scarecrows were trying to move towards 
this figure of Christ on the hill. You wouldn't immediately get that from the song, but some of the lyrics probably came about because of that idea. Um, try and think what other songs were on that record. The Hallowing Touch, again, I think sometimes when you're a writer, it's, it's really all about words. And sometimes you just hear a word like hallowing and think, I've got to have that. I've got to, I've got to work that into a song. I need to, right. because there's something beautiful about it. You know, so that's, that's how things happen. Yeah. That and then, you know, Dark Star is another really good one. Dark Star. I, I think Dark Star was like, there's a bit of Led Zeppelin in there, you know, and that kind of riff. Yeah. I, I didn't take too long kind of writing it. There's a, another track called The Bait the Nape of Your Neck. Right. And it was a finger style guitar part. Again, these songs, I think they're all really cool. I think they, you know, I think I, I do think it's a cool record, but tends to be more with solo stuff. You have so little expectation for records these days. Right. That I really don't, you know, I'm not like, if it means I can continue to do gigs, that's really good. But it has about the same meaning as a business card. Although it's a bit more expensive to make, yeah. you know, but it still, it still means something to me you just don't expect anything back. So a lot of the time, when you talk about something like Strange Flowers, I'm talking about it now, but it, it's gone. You know, I, I don't expect yeah. anything from it. You move on to the next one. Right. You know, then you move on to the next one. Yeah. Like, it, that's it. That's it. You know, it's, it's history. Yeah. You play any of those songs live? I do, I do. Uh, I play Scarecrow song. I play This Could Be The Day. Uh, it depends how I feel on the night. Sometimes, mm. sometimes I'll do something. If somebody asks for something, I will just think, why not? You know, especially if it's a more esoteric type one. Um, I'll just go for it. There is a song on Strange Flowers, My Father's Coat. Yeah. That was that was epic. And and it probably took me about a year and a half to write it. Wow. So the idea behind that was essentially I used to meet my dad with my, my kids. And you could see him coming about a mile away because of his coat. You know, he, like it's like an old guy coat. Right. You see this thing. And then I thought, imagine you were estranged from your father, but you saw his coat in a market, and you knew that that was his coat. And then seeing that coat, you would know that he was dead because he wouldn't be parted from it. So that was the kind of concept of the song. It is quite complex, the time frame 
in the songs, really complex. I'd written the lyrics before I wrote the tune. I demoed it, and when I did the demo, I was working with a guy called Donald Shaw at the time, who produced the record with me, and he said, that's a great song, man, but it's really like Rhinestone Cowboy. And I was like, what? And then I listened to it, and it really was like Rhinestone Cowboy. And I I can use it. I honestly, never, Rhinestone Cowboy never entered my mind. <laughs> right. But it was, and I thought, fuck, okay, so back to the drawing board. And then one day I was messing around with some weird tuning and started playing it. And I thought, I've got it. That's it. Yeah. I can work this into this tuning and it's all going to work. And it's going to be great. And um, I remember doing the guitar solo for that as well. And it, it was a Friday afternoon. It was about two o'clock. And it was one take, just raging feedback. Right. And I was just turning the guitar and getting these noises. Um, and when, I, I think there's that thing for everyone who, who is a musician or played in a band or did something in the studio where you have things turned up ridiculously loud and you're playing electric guitar yeah. and there's nothing quite like it. You know, it's still a wonderful thing. Right. <laughs> That's great. You remember where you were the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Yes. Uh, I was in my girlfriend's kitchen and there were a few of us uh, and it was the first time we'd been played in the radio. And we were all jumping around, uh, like it was it was great. It was like <laughs> the guy played a demo of a song, and it was a, a Glasgow guy called Billy Sloan, who I'm still friendly with. Uh, he's a great guy, and he he still works in radio. And uh, Billy played a record, and we we thought we'd made it. <laughs> what what song was it? It was a song called Honey at the Core. Okay. Which was my first band called Friends Again. Um, but uh, yeah, there was there was some funny shit. One one time you were talking about my love lives in a dead house. So the first record I ever bought was Come On Feel the Noise. Okay. Okay. And I met I met Naughty Holder. Uh, just in the course of doing stuff, you know, the, the, he was on the same record company actually. Um, and Noddy was, he was nice, you know, it was cool, it was okay. But we were driving to do a TV show, and there was a kind of, there was a show called Round Table where the guests of that week reviewed the records, and then there would be a record of the week. So we played My Love Lives in a Dead House and Noddy Holder was on the show and he was like, 
that is a number one record. <laughs> we were record of the week, and we were all rolling about laughing in this right. band. It was a really poignant moment, given that the first record I ever bought was Come On Feel The Noise. And you yeah. just, wow. Wow. <laughs> I mean, the sad thing is he couldn't have been further from the fucking truth. You know, <laughs> number one record. You know, right. peaked at about 93 and then went down the next week. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. He, got, he got in the door. We quickly got kicked yeah. out. <laughs> well, it was worth it to hear Noddy say that. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, but James, I really appreciate your time today. Oh, no worries, man. It's been a pleasure. And a special thanks to James for joining me today. Go back and check out Love and Money's catalog. It's on Spotify. It's really good, as well as James' solo work, which is also on Spotify. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jamthron, and his website is jamesgrantsongbook.com. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the first and all one nine, or like the page Living My Youth on Facebook. Go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. Don't have iTunes? Not a problem. Shows on SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, Amazon Music, basically wherever you can find a podcast. A new episode comes out every week, and next week is our 250th episode. And before we go, I'm going to play one of James's solo songs. The Bay at the Nape of Your Neck from his Strange Flowers album. Enjoy. Suffer me, my casual crew words. 
I'm 